All right, let's take a look at Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3. Let's give our attention to God's Word. It says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The Bible says that all men are like grass, and all man's glory is like the flowers of the field. And then the grass withers, and the flowers fade away, but the word of God stands forever. So let me pray for us before we look at it further tonight. Heavenly Father, we, we stop for a minute and we ask that you would be with us. We recognize what we've, really what we've just read, that you are the author of these words. That you are a God who speaks. And Father, you are so gracious to speak to us. And we pray and ask that you would be here with us and that not only would you speak, but that you would help us to hear. That you would work in spite of our distractions, in spite of our own sin, our, our hearts that are slow to believe. That you would be at work and you would open up your word and you would open us up so that we would understand it. So that we might learn something of ourselves uh, in our sin. And more importantly, that we would see and learn something of you and your grace and your mercy. And so, Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, one of my favorite comedians is a guy named Brian Regan. I'm not sure if anybody's familiar. Apparently a few of you at least are familiar with Brian Regan. A uh, very funny man. And he has a routine uh, where he talks about... Basically, he talks about what he says is his biggest social fantasy. Uh, he says that he wishes that he could, have, he could have been one of the 12 people that have ever walked on the moon. And he, uh, he sets this bit up uh, by talking about how generally people love to talk about themselves. right? He calls them uh, that person, and, and we sort of all are this person at some time or another, the me monster. right? The me monster... Basically listens to the other person tell a story, and as soon as they finish, they jump in with something like, that's nothing. Listen to this. Right? And they're going to one-up you. And he says he wishes that he could be one of the 12 people that's, that's ever walked on the moon so that he could let the me monster just go on their story. Right? Talking about how great they are, and he does the whole me, my, you know, I did this, and me, and my. And just let them go with it. And then when they finish, just really simply say... I walked on the moon. Just, just drop that bomb. right? Because it's the ultimate trump card. There, there is nothing that you can come back with like, oh yeah, but I. right? Because I walked on the moon. You can't top that. It's the, it's the, ultimate, it's the ultimate experience in a sense. Nobody can stack up to that no matter what they've done. And as somewhat silly as, as this illustration or this parallel might be, um, 
In a sense, that's really what the author of Hebrews is doing here in this passage. It's really what he's saying about Jesus. Uh, He's saying, the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is the ultimate. So in a sense, we could say not only did Jesus, you know, walk on, or maybe not only, I don't know that Jesus ever actually walked on the moon, but not that Jesus walked on the moon, but he created the moon. That Jesus is ultimate or supreme above any and everything else. And so this semester, if you've uh, been with us, you know that we're studying through the book of Hebrews and our theme for the semester is better than you can imagine. Because that's really what the author of Hebrews is trying to communicate. He's writing to a group of Christians that are being tempted basically to ditch Jesus and to go back to what they used to believe, to Judaism. They're really struggling with the question of what's so great? Is Jesus really that great? What's so great about him? And so Hebrews is all about showing Uh, these Christians and us that Jesus is better than you can ever imagine. And this passage in particular tonight, uh, it's really sort of the big picture of Hebrews, sort of the 30,000 foot view, right? Um, Where he basically says, Jesus, Jesus is ultimate. Jesus is supreme over everything. And that's why actually this, This is a really incredibly deep and profound passage. In some ways, I'm really, really nervous about preaching it because you just can't do it justice. Uh, We're going to spend two weeks on it. This week and next week, we're going to sort of break it in half uh, and and look at it. But this week, we're going to look at three things that we see about Jesus. We're going to see that Jesus is the inheritor. Secondly, we're going to see that Jesus is the creator. And thirdly and finally, we'll see that Jesus is the representer. All right, so first, let's take a look at the fact that Jesus is the inheritor. He's the heir. Look at verse 2. Speaking about Jesus, it says uh, that uh, his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Look, you have to understand, in our culture, it's not really that big of a deal. But in the ancient Near East, being the firstborn son was everything. The firstborn son was the primary heir of of all the fortune of the family. They're the ones that got virtually everything. And this text is telling us that Jesus, as the son of God, is the ultimate heir. And not just of some things, but of everything. That Jesus is the rightful inheritor of all things. Everything is rightfully his. Colossians 1.16 says something similar. It says that all things were created for him. They're intended for him, pointing towards him in a sense. All right, so what do we do with that? Look, there, there's so many different avenues we can go with this. We're going we're gonna to basically look at three avenues, sort of go down three ways to pursue this real quick. Uh, and the first is this, and I think we need to say this first, that there's a real sense in which the application of, of all of these things that we're going to talk about, we always, I think, want application to be like, all right, so what do we do? What do you want me to go do? And then there's a very real sense in which there is nothing to do about this. This just is. And the first thing that you need 
to do about it is nothing. Just, just let it, just try to let it wash over you. Just sit under it and be. Just recognize the, the enormity and the wonder of it. Of who Jesus is and how, how huge and how amazing he is. That everything in the universe is rightfully his. The second avenue I want to go down, uh, we need to see that it's actually seems to be in the passage that it's not just the physical stuff of the universe that Jesus is, is going to inherit. Now, he certainly is going to, in a sense, inherit all of the riches and the resources and the beauty and all of those sorts of things. But it seems like actually that the author is is getting it more than that. And it's kind of hard for us to see. I think the original hearers would have seen it a lot clearer. But let me let me show it to you. Um, I think he's trying to bring to mind another aspect of what it means to be the Messiah. In that he's going to be the inheritor, not just of things, but of people. That a people is going to be his inheritance. All right, where do we see that? All right, this this gets a little, you know, uh, Bible scholarly. You got to stick with it, but it's not that hard. All right, if you look down, if you have a Bible, if you have the rest of the text, if you look down at verse um, five, it says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? All right, that last part is a quote from the Old Testament from Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verse 7. Right, and these, these folks, these he, right, Hebrews, right, Old Testament, uh, they would have you know, much more readily recognized that. And they also probably would know that the very next verse after the one he quoted, uh, verse 8, says this. Uh, and Psalm 2 is all of, it's a messianic psalm. It's all about the Messiah, right? It says this, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Right? So you see what he's saying. That, that part of the Messiah's inheritance is people. It's his people. And right, who are his people? Right? The, the church. You, if you're in Christ. So doesn't that help to... Doesn't that help to understand uh, and see the beauty of the fact that Jesus is the inheritor of everything, right? It takes it from being this, this fact that's kind of cool, I guess, and, you know, might win you a trivia contest that, you know, ultimately Jesus is going to get everything, I guess, to seeing that, that part of that, the, the part that he values the most is you. That, that what, what Jesus, what makes Jesus feel wealthy, he's going to get everything. But what he values the most is getting you and getting me. It's an incredible truth. Right? What, if you're struggling with the fact, like these Christians were, of thinking, is Jesus really that great? Right? Would, doesn't that help and make it come alive even more? The beautiful truth that he values me and you more than anything. And the third avenue I want to go down is really just sort of an outworking of of what we just said. And it's this. Because since that's true, I think the only way that you and I can really understand who we are, understand ourselves, our place in this world, is in relation to Jesus. 
Because he is the inheritor of all things. Because if everything is created for him, if everything has its in, if Jesus is the intended goal for everything else, for everything, then really you can only understand anything as it relates to him. Does that make sense? Uh, one commentator said this, uh, everything in the universe has, as it, has its purpose and destiny in the air, Jesus Christ. And so since, since our souls are ultimately meant to be owned by Jesus, then we're only going to ever understand them in relationship to him. All right, I'm going to give you an illustration, sports illustration. Buckle up, there will be plenty more sports illustrations to come uh, this semester. But I thought about it like this. It's a little bit like the goal line in football. Let's just take college football. How do you understand everything that go, that's involved with college football? From the, the, the players on the field, um, you know, the umpire and referee, the, um, the fans in the stands, the recruiting trips, every bit of it. It all, it all and only makes sense. It, has, it, it all centers back to the goal line. Getting that ball across the goal line. Right? If you're an, if you're an offensive lineman, what do you do? Well, you, you block people. You get in people's way. Why? Well, so that they don't get past you. Why does that matter? Well, you don't want them to tackle your quarterback or your running back. Well, why don't you want them to tackle your quarterback or running back? Because you want to advance the ball. Why do you want to advance the ball? Because you want to advance the ball over the goal line. Right? It all makes sense because of that. If you take the goal line away, then nothing makes sense. The fact that we're all sitting there in the sun, you know, uh, whistles are being blown and flags, none of that makes sense if there's no goal line. What can make sense of the fact of, you know, 50, 60-year-old men going to the living rooms of 17-year-old kids and doing ridiculous things to get them to come to school? Why would anybody do that? Right? Remember the old video of Nick Saban doing the, some sort of dance? You know? um, it all only makes sense because of the goal line. Right? You have to understand it all in that, uh, in, as it relates to that. And so because everything, including you and me, has a, its ultimate destiny in Jesus, then you and I only make sense in reference to him. Couple of, a quick example. Right? It's the second week of school. And I, I'm going to guess, in fact, I could say that I know that some of you are probably feeling lonelier than you ever have in your whole life. Even though there's thousands of people here, you feel incredibly lonely. And why is it so painful? Why do you feel that way? What can make sense of that? Well, it's because... It's because you and I were built in the image of God. And God exists as a trinity, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's always existed in relationship. He's always related perfectly and had relationship. And we were built like that. We're built for relationship. And so when you take that away, there's dysfunction. It's hard. It doesn't feel good. And the only thing that can actually begin to truly heal that pain 
is to be in relationship. And, and ultimately, the only thing that can heal that is, is, to be, is the glorious truth that we are brought into that same relationship by Jesus. That we're actually reconciled to God by Jesus. And now look, I hope that doesn't make the fact, like if you're one of those folks and feeling profoundly lonely, I'm, I'm sorry for you and would love to talk to you about that. And I hope, I hope you don't hear me saying, like, see how easy it is? Like, get over it, right? Jesus, all right, you're good now. It's far more complicated than that, but I'm trying to distill it down. Um, some of you, no doubt, are, are already just absolutely overwhelmed and, and anxious about your grades. Why is that? Well, it's because we were all built, we were all built to have value and to be important and to find our, our, our dignity and our significance in something. We were built for that. We were built to find our significance and our, our, our worth in what Jesus says about us and how we relate to him. And when we, but the problem is we, we look to other things. And when we look to our grades, for instance, we get super panicked and overwhelmed by it because they just they don't really support that. They can't support our identity. We're designed to find our value in what Jesus says about us, that, that we are his prized treasure. So that we could go on and on seeing how everything about us relates, that ultimately it really does point us back to Jesus. And we, we'd love to talk to you about that if you want to sit down and talk about that sometime. But we, we need to move on. Second thing I want you to see, sort of big picture here, second aspect of what we see about Jesus is that he is the creator. He's not only the inheritor of everything created, but he's actually the one that created it. Look at verse 2 again. It talks about Jesus through whom also he created the world. John 1 says something similar. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Look, everything that exists in the universe is there because Jesus made it. Just try to let your mind catch up to that for a second. Everything in the universe is there because Jesus made it. Right? Just, if you try to com- just comprehend the size of the universe, we can't. Um, we, you can't even come close. I spent, as I was working on this... Um, I spent more time than I should looking at YouTube videos about like the, the size of the universe. And it was actually really fun. And the one that I thought was the most fascinating to help try to get your mind around the size of the, the universe was this one. Uh, they basically, they were talking about the Hubble telescope. You familiar with the Hubble telescope? Right? Basically somebody had a really good idea. Let's take a really powerful te- telescope and put it out in space. And the further it goes, right, the closer we can get to stuff. And they decided to point this thing at this seemingly the, one of the darkest, most empty parts of space. So it doesn't look like there's anything there. Let's see what we got. And they said uh, it was a small, quote, small slice of space. And they said to understand how small of a slice, they said if you took a grain of sand and you put it on the tip of your finger and you held your hand out and you looked up at the sky... The amount of space covered by that grain of sand, right, that sliver, that's what they looked into, okay? 
So tiny. And what they found was 10,000 galaxies. Galaxies, not planets, not stars. 10,000 galaxies. So they estimate that there are a hundred, I mean, how do you do? A hundred billion galaxies in the universe. Each one having maybe a hundred billion stars. And so they, they said their conclusion was that that means that there are more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on the earth. How do, you, how do you even begin to think about that, right? I mean, just, we have deserts that go on for, you know, ever. All of the ocean is sand. It's enormous. And Jesus created every speck of it. Every bit of it. And again, the application is just first just to sit and wonder. Just Let it be. Be in awe of the power of Jesus. But there's actually more at work here. Because it also seems very fair to say that that this passage is not just saying that Jesus created the things. As expansive as that is. It seems like it's saying more than that. Because uh, the Greek word here uh, that we translate world. It's actually the Greek word that we uh, most often translate as ages. Uh, an, an era of that he created the eras of time. Uh, again, a, a commentator said, uh, described it as the sum of the periods of time and all that is manifest in them. In other words, everything and everything that happens in the universe owes its existence to Jesus. He's that big. We could say it this way, that Jesus creates by providence. That he's sovereign over everything that happens. And now look, as we apply that really quick, I'm sure that brings up a ton of questions. And some of them are really difficult. And I get that. We don't, unfortunately, we don't have time to dive into that. But I want you to think about this. That, right, these, Christian, uh, these Hebrew Christians were facing persecution that's why they were tempted to say, like, you know, we, we might just sort of bail on this Jesus thing and go back and not, like, not do all this hard stuff. Um, maybe Jesus isn't so great. So can you see how this would, would help them to think about reality differently? Right? Th- this vision of Jesus that says, no, 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 Jesus is far bigger than you've ever thought. He's far bigger than those persecuting you. Well, what about us? And look, the same thing is true for me and you. Right? The author of Hebrews wants you to see that Jesus is way bigger than whatever it is. The loneliness that we just talked about, that, that might feel absolutely overwhelming. And you might think there is nothing that can fix this. Because I can't get out and do it. I, I can't make friends. There, there is no light at the end of this tunnel. And the author of Hebrews wants you to see, he's basically looking at you and saying, no. I know it seems big, and in a real sense it is big, and Jesus is way bigger.
Maybe you feel that there's no way you could pull out of your depression. It's too big. And, and this passage is trying to is saying to you, no, no, no. Jesus is way bigger. The addiction that you that you have, and you think, I will never stop doing this, is too big. Jesus is way bigger. Maybe it's the things that you've done in the past. Um, And your conscience says, it's too big. Jesus is way bigger. Maybe it's the dysfunction of your family. It's too big. Jesus is way bigger. He's the creator of everything. and he's, He's big enough. And that's good news. All right, we need to move on. Thirdly and finally, uh, we see that Jesus is the representer. That's probably a terrible title for this third point, but it's the one I put down. He's the representer. Uh, Look at verse 3. It says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. It's basically telling us that Jesus, Jesus manifests God to us. That Jesus explains God. But if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Because Jesus is God. He's God in the flesh. He's the radiance of God's glory. This is what we get a glimpse of in, the, in what we call the um, Mount of Transfiguration. Right? Are you familiar with that? You know, in the, uh, Matthew 17, Jesus takes Peter and James and John and they go up on a mountain And basically, Jesus starts to just glow, shine. And the the authors of the Gospels are just at at pains to try to even describe how bright it became. And basically, what, what was happening is God was pulling back the curtain a little bit and and revealing Jesus' true glory. Right? The voice from heaven, God's voice said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And he's showing him that he's showing us that Jesus has the exact same glory that he does. The same glory as God himself. And Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. What's that all about? Well, the word for imprint there, it's the idea of like a seal or a stamp, right? Um, Like how you might, um, how might a coin might be minted. You take a piece of metal and it's, imprinted upon and it's that the the coin now has the exact same uh, image as the uh, the mold or uh, you, you would dip a seal in wax and then you know put it on a paper and it has the exact same image right Jesus is the perfect representation of the father it's much like uh, what John 1.1 1, 1 says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. How can, how can the Word, which John makes clear is Jesus, how can He be with God and be God? And that's what this is telling us, that Jesus, Jesus is God. He's every bit 100% God, and yet He is distinct. He's, Jesus is not the Father, but he has, He's of the exact same substance. 
the same stuff. He represents the Father perfectly. All right, so what does that mean for us? And it means that if, if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. What's your view of God? Uh, maybe if you, you know, you've read through the Old Testament, uh, if you've grown up in church, or uh, you, might think, you might think of the Old Testament God as being really mean. Right? That, that, that really God just seems to want to um, throw out a bunch of rules and zap people when they don't obey. Maybe that's your uh, view of who God is. And maybe that's the view that you reject. And, and what you need to see, what I want you to see, what Hebrews wants you to see is you need to look at Jesus. To help understand who God is. Not to say that, oh, he didn't do those things. Those things didn't happen. They did. But to, to understand the fullness of who God is, we have to look at Jesus. Um, a lot of us probably, even maybe subconsciously, we probably default to thinking about God the way that you think about it when you see a cop get behind you when you're driving. Right? How do you view that cop? If you're like me, you probably default to thinking that, that what he's doing, he's watching you like a hawk. And he is waiting for you to just step, I mean, just a little bit out of line and he's going to nail you. That's just what he wakes up in the morning, just ready to roll and do that. And like you're, I'll give you five miles, six miles an hour. That's it. You're done. Right. And that can really often be the way that we view God. Maybe that's our view. Um, I heard a pastor friend of mine say that he grew up and maybe you have this sort of picture of God. Uh, his picture of God, sort of the story of the Bible, was that God created man and man sinned, and God was just really angry at sinners and just always wants to just wipe them out. And then, sort of, ultimately, he finally uh, decides that he's going to hurl his judgment, you know, the lightning bolt of judgment, down on people. And sort of the story of salvation is that Jesus jumps in the way of that, uh, of that lightning bolt of judgment. And he takes the, he takes the, you know, the punishment from, from God. Even though God really, and God's sort of frustrated by that, but like, all right. Like, I really wanted to get him, and Jesus got in the way. Dang it. I think we can think about God a lot in that way. So what picture of God do you have? Because the right picture of God is Jesus. And so we're going to finish with this thought. What, what is that picture? What's the right picture of God? Well, it's a picture of a God that actually loves sinners. Now, he doesn't love sin, but he loves sinners. And he loves sinners so much that he, that he did the almost unimaginable. That he put himself on the hook in place of sinners. That he loves sinners so much that he decided to marry himself to people that are not going to be faithful to him. That he loves sinners so much that he came in the person and work of Jesus and he put himself, he lived, he lived life in our place. And then he took death in our place. 
So there's a sense in which you could say that God ripped himself apart so that, to save us because he loves us. For people that had rejected him. And that's, that's the good news. That's the picture of God. That's the true God. The one that has compassion on sinners. That looks at, looks at people like sheep without a shepherd. Right? If you read through the New Testament, um, or particularly the Gospels, when Jesus comes in contact with bad people, right, the ones that, are, that have really screwed up their life, how often does he just give them a hard time? Never. Right? Because it's always the bad people that, that see that they need him. It's the people that, that have their lives together, right? It's the religious good people. And Jesus gives them a really hard time because they don't need him. They don't think they need him. Right? The true picture of God is one that moves towards sinners and that loves people like me and you to the utmost. And look, that's an invitation. It's an invitation for you that Jesus invites you even now to come to him and to come for free. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, what an amazing truth. We have, we have um, tread in waters that are very deep tonight. Would you help us to understand? Would you expand our hearts and minds to understand you even a little bit? Understand you and your love and your grace for us. How much you love us. Jesus, we praise you and thank you and we pray it in your name. Amen.